May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This evening, we celebrate the Feast of the Ascension. The Ascension is, in many ways, the culmination of Christ's work. After he goes to the cross and, in an incredible act of subversion, fulfillment, and iconography, becomes the Passover lamb, the sacrifice of atonement, through which people may now enter into God's presence. After he is raised from the dead, a first fruit not just of future resurrection for those that are in him, but rather a first fruit of the new creation toward which the entire universe is headed. After he makes himself known in his resurrected body to his followers, eating with them, restoring them, commissioning them to carry on his work, after all of these things, he ascends to the heavenly realm. Where, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, having offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In a certain sense, the coronation of the Christ began at his crucifixion as the mocking soldiers made him a crown of thorns and posted above his mangled body a sign that read, The King of the Jews. What they did in ignorant, mocking irony, God is now unveiling as the true reality of the universe, that Jesus Christ is the Lord and King of all that exists. He is King over everything. To be seated at the right hand of God is more than just locational. It's shorthand for what Jesus says in our gospel text this evening. It is the place in which he has been granted authority over all people. He's the one in charge. So with his kingship in view, I would like us to briefly consider three ways in which we should live under his kingship as his citizens. Prostrate, don't panic. Pray, don't petrify. And practice, don't pretend. We live in an agitated world, don't we? My initial example was going to be about the deadly attack in Manchester, but now we have one that has happened much closer to home. There seems to be violence and uh, disarray in our own political systems here in our country. There's countries not too far from us that seem on the edge of social collapse. I opened Twitter, Twitter for two minutes last week and saw that Portland was abuzz about some burrito cart that apparently did the wrong thing and so we should all be outraged and then they got closed down so now we should be outraged about that and it, it seems that we live in a cultural moment that has become obsessed with outrage and panic because of what is going on in the world around us. But these cycles of outrage and panic lead to more outrage and panic until you eventually wear yourself out and you sort of enter into this state of apathy. It's what the ancients referred to as acedia. It's this sort of baseline rejection of what Johnny was talking about last week, the giftedness of life, the idea that life itself is a gift from God. You, you work yourself up into such terror and panic in the world that you just sort of have to check out completely. But when we catch a glimpse of the ascended Christ, and when we start to bask in the rays of his glory, we will be prostrate instead of panicky. We will be worshiping, not wigged out. The thing that the world needs whether it realizes it or not, is people who worship Jesus rather than join them in their panic. That is perhaps what the world needs most.
is people who will worship Jesus rather than join them in panic. But this requires a people who spend time gazing upon Christ's glory. You don't just become a worshiper. It takes time. Jesus tells us in this prayer that he has glorified the Father by completing the work that he was given to do. He's looking toward the cross here. He's saying essentially that God is glorified in the crucifixion of Christ. That single backward upside-down fact must never cease to control our imaginations. God is glorified in the crucified Christ. And Jesus asked the Father to continue to glorify him and to glorify me in your presence, he says, with the glory I had with you before the world began. And here we have the two poles that make up not just Christology 101, though it is definitely that, but it's almost as if John in this prayer of, of Christ has recorded for us a massive theory about everything, that the man Jesus is also somehow the eternal Son of God who with God the Father and God the Spirit shared in unrelenting glory before the world began from eternity past, a glory that continues to be praised throughout the heavenly realm unceasingly. Glory is one of those $10 words that we throw around without really knowing what it means, right? In its simplest definition, glory is to have preeminence in existence. And so we have a bunch of metaphoric language for how we talk about it. Sometimes we, we talk about it spatially, that it's to exist above all other things, right? so much higher, lofty, and uplifted. We talk about it in terms of value or rarity, so we say that glory is light, like in the Transfiguration, or fire, like in Mount Sinai, or it's precious metals and stones, like gold and sapphire of the temple and of the New Jerusalem. And I think that sort of glory, we kind of intuitively get. We, we get it at sort of a gut level. We're able to pick up almost instinctively when we're in the presence of power and glory. But it's that other part, it's the part about Jesus glorifying the Father in his crucifixion that we don't really get. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around it, and that's the reason that we talk about it all the time. It's the reason that we talk about his life, death, and resurrection over and over again, even in the Eucharistic liturgies, because we are trying to wrap our imaginations around this idea. How could the most glorious, preeminent being in all the universe come in the flesh and be ripped apart by an ancient world superpower? How could he allow himself to be out-politicized by weak, fearful men? How does uncreated light enter into the darkness of Hades? How does he not respond to all of this with outrage and panic? Well, it's because he's been given authority over all people. He understood that his crucifixion and the final culmination of his crowning in heaven are part of one and the same thing, which is that he has been given authority over all people. But what does he say that authority is for? That he might give eternal life to those whom the Father has given him. This paradox of glory should cause us to prostrate ourselves. It should cause us to fall on our faces before the crucified and crowned Christ. That's what worship is. And do you know what a nice byproduct of that kind of worship is? When we start to glimpse the glory of Christ, when we really start to wrap our imaginations around the idea that he is truly crowned king over all the world and he is good, then we don't panic. 
We don't panic because he is reigning over all things in a way that obliterates the limitations of our language that our language places on the words reigning over all things. He is reigning over all things so completely we don't even have words to describe how completely his reign is over all things. Not only that, he's not a tyrant. He's a shepherd. He's a good shepherd. His goodness and mercy are everlasting, and he is glorified not in punishing those who were his enemies, but in dying for them and transforming them into family citizens of his own kingdom. The more that we worship, the more that we fall prostrate, the less prone we will be to panic. Because we will see more and more the glory and power and goodness of Christ. And when we get this glimpse of Christ's glory and his goodness in the midst of a world that is set on panic mode, we have to become people who pray and don't petrify. As I hinted at earlier, one of the responses to a world that is set on panic is often to sort of harden our hearts against us. And this is a particular temptation in a few Christian traditions to sort of cut ourselves off from what is happening in the world around us so we can sort of pretend like it's not happening. We'll just have our own enclaves of communities and do all our own things together. But this is not actually an option for those who are in Christ. Notice that Jesus prays explicitly that God would not take his followers out of the world, but would rather protect them from the evil one. He's not asking us to remove ourselves from the world around us. In fact, he prays specifically that that would not happen. Rather, they would be protected from the evil one. But then you sort of have to rethink, what does protection from the evil one mean? I mean, when you start to look at the lives of his followers from here on out, the idea of protection seems pretty thin. These guys were harassed, threatened, imprisoned, beat, and martyred until almost all of them were gone. But you know what was protected? Their faith. They had been sort of wishy-washy. Peter himself is going to go back and forth as Christ goes to the cross. But Christ's prayer is fulfilled in that their faith is protected. And not only that, but the message that they had been entrusted with to put on display before the world and hand down to the next generation of bishops, priests, and deacons and the people of the church was protected. And for what? Not to become insular and remain cut off from the world, but precisely to be leavened, to be salt, to be light, to infiltrate the world with the message of Christ's kingship and goodness. That's what it means to be an apostolic church, to be sent out into the world as Christ was sent into the world. And when we understand that we are to be in the world, but not find our roots in the world, that we are to be rooted rather in Christ, but given as a gift to the world, sent into it just as he was, then our only option is to become people of prayer. It's the only way it'll work. Because otherwise, you're going to find your roots growing down into the world rather than in Christ, or you will start to petrify and harden in your hearts against the world that you are supposed to be giving yourself to as a gift. Being petrified into stones that aren't good for anything in God's kingdom. Now, we don't have time to get into it, but this text here in John 17 is often referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer, right? But it's actually a parallel of what we refer to in, in the Synoptic Gospels as the Lord's Prayer. 
The petitions, the things that he's asking for in each prayer echo and fill each other out. And this is instructive for us because the Lord's Prayer was what? It was, it was Jesus' response to his disciples' request that he teach them to pray. This high priestly of G- prayer... Let's try that again. It's warm in here. This high priestly prayer of Jesus is another such instruction. We are to model our prayers on the prayer of Christ. So we need to pray that the Father is glorified in the Son and in the church that has become the Son's body. We need to pray that God would protect his church, not by removing her from the world, but by keeping her from the evil one and the disunity that our adversary longs to foster. We must pray that God's church would truly be one. We must pray that all people would come to attain eternal life, which we're told in this passage, what is eternal life? That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, is what Jesus says. Friends, to be people of prayer really is the heart of our vocation. It is the heart of discipleship because to be in prayer is to be in the presence of Christ. It's to be thinking his thoughts after him. It's seeing the world with his eyes. That's why everything we do as a community is and should be rooted in common prayer. In the daily office where together, even if we're apart from one another physically, we are digesting the word of Christ as one and allowing ourselves to be shaped by him in our response of prayer. This is part of what it means to be sanctified by the word as he prays here. The more that we saturate ourselves in scripture, the more we will begin to actually pray the words of Christ. And then we are becoming truly his body. Daily liturgical prayer is a way of turning over the topsoil of our hearts to give us an ever-present softness toward the Spirit of God and his work in the world that he desires to draw us into. We are to be worshipers who prostrate rather than panic. We are to be disciples who pray rather than petrify and harden. And to worship Christ and to follow him in prayer means that we must be people who truly practice rather than pretend. This is what St. Peter is getting at in the passage that was read for us earlier, that those who, can, who suffer should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. It's building a habit. Now, it's doubtful that many of us are truly suffering due to our Christianity, but there are countless of our brothers and sisters who are, as we see again in more martyrdom in the Coptic church. And I in no way want to play into this sort of watered-down martyrdom storyline that's perpetuated by some groups here in America where we're somehow being persecuted. We, there, there is not a Christian in the United States that, is, that has faced real persecution in the way that our brothers and sisters around the world have. That's just reality. Okay? We have incredible religious freedom for which we should be grateful to God. However, There is a sense in which being a Christian conspicuously in a place like Portland will cost you something. It just will. Following Jesus is costly. It could be your reputation. reputation. You may end up being considered less cool or intelligent or open-minded. You may get passed over for job promotions because you refuse to work certain hours or do certain things. You may start to lose friend groups, or opportunities because of your commitment to following Christ. 
And the truth is, is that if we are not practicing in regular ways, in regular acts and rituals, things that sink into us at a gut level that Jesus is the king of the universe and that our response is one of prostration and prayer, then we are going to find it harder and harder to see him and to follow him. We're going to find it harder and harder to hear his voice. In the moments of decision, we will find it harder and harder to choose for the benefit of his kingdom rather than the kingdom of self if we are not putting into practice his words and his teaching. Christianity takes practice. It's work. The liturgy, and and by extension, the daily office, is our gym. The liturgy is the work of the people. This, This is where we come together and work it out together, what it means that Jesus Christ is king. And I realize that some of the equipment and the, and the workouts that we're doing in here are a little bit strange, but have you ever seen a Pilates gym? Every gym has its own method, right? Okay? There's a reason that we do the things that we do. The thing that we are practicing here is not getting all of the feels, right? The thing that we are practicing here is not an experience for us to add to our Instagramified self-actualization project. We are practicing attending to the presence of the crucified and coronated Christ. That drives every decision we make when we come together and do the work of worship. Those who have studied the early church have concluded that early Christians grew in number not because they won arguments, but because their habitual behavior was distinctive and intriguing. This is a question that plagues historians all the time. How did this weird, runaway, heretical sect of Judaism that was being persecuted by everybody all of a sudden turn the entire Roman Empire upside down? Because of their habitual behavior was distinctive and intriguing. The things that they did over and over and over again set them apart from the culture that they were in, and it made the people around them lean in and scratch their head a little bit and want to know more. And so we say, Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And he has ascended to his Father. May his kingship and our worship of him make us distinctive and intriguing to the people around us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.